take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war Welcome to Nurses Out Loud. I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley. I have with me today an organization called a thousand widows.org. And that is one zero 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 widows.org. And with Lori Cedarstrom, who lost her husband Eric to the deadly hospital protocols. And Curtis Bay, who lost his wife, Tammy, to the same. Guys, I know that there are thousands, I suspect millions of people that can relate to what you're going to hear on today's episode. And I encourage you all to start talking and to know that you're not alone. There are many, many of you out there. I'm going to start with uh, Lori. Lori, can you please uh, introduce yourself and, and tell us about your organization? Well, our organization, like you said, was has started the formation of a thousand widows um, because of the commonalities. When this first happened, you feel alone that you're the only one. But I want people to know that the single their voice is the single most important thing that we have in fighting this medical tyranny. Um, Patients' rights need to be restored, um, honest and transparent care. Um, We need to have the right to alternative treatments. All of our patients' rights through the hospitals as well as through the administrative code here in Arizona have been violated and we need accountability. We need accountability in the face of gross negligence for what has happened to our loved ones. I uh, have spent a lot of time documenting different widows, uh, what their experiences were and the commonalities we have listed on our website. Unfortunately, you get to the point, um, I'm into this 31 months as of Saturday. And I'm sad to say it's almost as if I know exactly what they're gonna say next. And this has to stop. I have never known in my entire life when somebody goes to the hospital, you know, we all have different symptoms and people are just being put into a category because it's financially incentivized. So our whole goal is to get legislation through to open up the eyes of the public, um, hopefully get some attorneys involved so that we can move forward in restoring our rights and, and holding accountability. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as hospital supervisor, you know, I saw a lot of cases come through the hospital where, you know, a patient had maybe one or two symptoms or something. And, and when we talk about symptoms, I mean, they, the symptoms were every single thing, right. You know, from a cough to a sniffle to diarrhea and, um, and, and, you know, how many patients even came in with, you know, not those symptoms essentially, but they were diagnosed or they were put on as um, COVID positive. And then that, that included isolation and experimental medications like remdesivir. Um, you know, it, it, it was egregious and it was even more egregious that healthcare workers were falling into this propaganda messaging and, and following it. It was astonishing. Yeah, I think that's one of the most um, heartbreaking pieces of all of this is one that Lori says you can almost predict what most people are going to say anymore because it's so prevalent and so consistent across most of these uh, hospitals and facilities. Uh, there's people that have gone on with gone in with back aches, um, got tested COVID positive because it's the policy of the hospital to you have to test if you enter the hospital no matter what. And once they get you tested positive, you end up in the positive floor for COVID, and then you're automatically treated for COVID, regardless of whatever you're you're in there, you went in there for. Um, in my case, and in many cases like that, uh, my wife was a healthy 59-year-old non-smoker, no drugs, no alcohol, no nothing, uh, was complaining of some, you know, breathing challenges, pneumonia. We, um, the emergency room nurse said, yep, you've got pneumonia. We're going to get you treated for some pneumonia. You're COVID negative. Uh, we're going to get you on a floor for pneumonia. Got under the floor for pneumonia. It, the whole, all hell broke loose. They had a COVID team of six or seven people ready to jump and act a certain way, prescribe a certain way, treat a certain way. And the minute you push back on just basic questions about, you know, one, how do we get here? She's negative. And two, what does all this mean? You were labeled instantly combative. Um, and it began the, the second part of the protocol. That's one of the, the, the hardest things that we have to face today is trying to communicate this message about um, the 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 way that this this protocol is being implemented across not just one hospital or two but across the entire country in massive chains uh and it, it begs a lot of questions some of the questions that we continue to have right now are like who organized the meeting that convinced the largest hospitals in the world overnight to change a business model to reflect operating in this manner, giving up everything else, giving up your cancer, giving up your kidney, giving up your brain to all your studies that you've been doing, you're going to change everything and you're going to operate this way going forward. So your hospitals are completely going to look different, act different, and the procedures are going to, are going to be according to whatever we say they are. Everybody wants to push the blame on somebody. Uh, most of them push it on the, we were just following CDC guidelines. Um, okay, who, who wrote those guidelines and when were they wrote and when did the meeting take place? There, it gets to the point where you almost feel like this is some sort of, um, you could say, you know, for old school uh, folks, you know, a mafia crime syndicate. Um, there were organized people at the very top of this that had to come up with strategies and compensation incentives uh, to tie the, to get these people to operate this way because the Cleveland Clinic CEO 
isn't going to go, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to change my business model and lose a million dollars a day uh, for my shareholders and start following what you want me to do. He would say, no, if you want me to do this, you need to tell me how I'm going to be compensated. So that conversation didn't happen with one person. It happened with all the leaders. Those things exist somewhere, but yet for us, um, without being able to expose that, all we are are telling sad stories in an echo chamber about our loved ones. And, you know, the hope is that somebody else uh, will learn something from our stories. We'll find out that there's resources on our site, uh, how they can connect with other people like us, what they can do in their in their particular city, state, or municipality. But in the in the long run, um, if we can't find some way to elevate this or pivot this to a higher level of um, um, discussion, we're we're, we're just going to be having this same story in a few more years. So the legislation that uh, Lori indicated early on, and that we're trying to get um, some support at um, in Congress on, there's four House bills. Don't know how those things will be once we get navigated through the first, you know, little. They're going to ask us, I'm sure, to pare them down a little bit, be, not be so specific, or maybe they'll ask for more specific language. We'll see. But she, Lori, was just down there the other day working hard on trying to uh, advance some of this stuff, and it, those things are going to help. That's definitely going to help. But on the other side, we the, these other questions need to be asked: who who organized this? Who created the incentives? What? It, why would an insurance company? Jody, you get you ruin your roof in your house and you call your insurance company, they're going to argue the amount of money they're going to pay for your roof. Insurance companies don't pay out uh, as much as you want. It takes weeks and months and you got to argue and go back and forth and have different people come out and do it. And then they'll pay, right? Right. That's almost typical. Car accident, same thing. Um, they, they argue. But in this case, weird as heck, they were willing to pay 120, 150% over for reimbursement on these fee structures organized by the hospitals. Again, that didn't happen in a vacuum. Somebody no. said, somebody said, hey, here's what you're going to pay. And all the top insurance companies in the world said, okay, that's what we'll pay. Good, we'll do it. So the pharmaceuticals could sell at a discount. Then the distribution people could sell back to the hospitals at a high increase. And the hospitals could bill back to the insurance companies that then they would pay a higher premium. I mean, Medicare was paying 120% over for, for these clients. These things are all outside of the scope of the where the boots on the ground that Lori uh, has been, you know, working her tail off on right now. But these are all at another level up above where we got to get some answers on this stuff. And and there's not enough people out there. They're protected by the PrEP Act. Um, they I've talked to several attorneys, as has Lori. And a lot of these folks are willing to take something, but it has to be some pretty low hanging fruit like you know, you witness the guy get shot in the face with a gun, they'll take that case. But they yeah. it's hard to tell them to take a case where my wife was killed, literally killed in a hospital by white coats, medical people who were supposed to be treating her to get her out of there and heal her. Right. Who completely violated the, the physician patient relationship and allowed pharmacy to be weaponized. Right. And um, and not and not. Um, fill orders that the physician, even if the physician wanted to prescribe something different, they weren't able to, you know, many people hold the hold doctors in the hospital to this high, high standard. And all they are are paycheck employees. People don't understand that, that they take orders just the same as everybody else does and what they can prescribe 
and in in the in the way they have to prescribe it, even if they know that you know medication X is better for this patient and they've seen better results with medication X, they won't be able to use it unless they go down with A, B, C, D first. And you know, I I just tell you guys, like my whistleblower lawsuit um, is including all of this stuff. Um, I am just going through the process right now of the administrative process, which takes so long, but they wanted to settle with me and I refused to mediate because my goal was never to get money in my pocket. My goal was for justice to be served. And it's for every single one of these 27 commonalities that were allowed to take place. You know, they there was an endanger to public health and safety. There was waste, fraud, and abuse. And then there's a few other ones. I mean, I'm hitting on every single thing that a whistleblower can whistleblow on. Um, and and I, I do want to say here uh, on your website, you know, you're encouraging what whistleblowers to come forward. And, you know, you, you make a statement that whistleblowers from within the hospital, um, hold on, I just want to pull it up so I see it. And I just want to clarify, when people are searching for a thousand widows, it's 1000widows.org. Yes. Don't type in 1000 written out. Right. And you, and you say that whistleblowers from within the hospital systems carry the greatest responsibility here on earth. And you know what we do, the, the people that witness this, I mean, we need to encourage them to come forward and, and support what I believe is millions of deaths, even oh, without a doubt, millions. Yeah. 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 I mean, because like you said, there's so many of these, these commonalities that just violated it. And in under the cares act, it's like, oh, well, you're not accountable. They are bullshit. You're not accountable. You are accountable both ethically, professionally, and personally, you're accountable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to ask to to share a little bit about your stories um, and your experiences, you know, with the audience. So, so they understand exactly like, you know, kind of what happened. Yeah, and Lori, you can start, but I wanted to uh, tie into what you just said, Jody. There is uh, one of the things that uh, makes this 1,000 Widow um, uh, focus so important is because there's a ton of people out there who have experienced this that don't know that they're part of this group. Mm-hmm. They are wandering around all by themselves in pain, figuring, can't figure out that, wow, this was actually orchestrated. These people were operating under a set of rules or um you know, uh, contracts and I didn't know it. So they left the hospital thinking that they're, they got the best service they could. Their, their, their husband or wife, sister, nephew, whatever, man, that's just the way it went. It was a bad deal. But then you look at this, these commonalities and you look at what's listed on the website and then you start seeing some other links of people that have experienced this and you go, wow, this just doesn't seem to add up here. There's a lot of consistencies I had in my situation that these folks are demonstrating. Mm -hmm. And you end up with about five or six core elements that could seem to be consistent across the board. Um, And it starts upon when you enter. I mean, they have a strategy for when you hit the gate 
at the emergency room how they're going to treat you and it doesn't matter what you come in for so it, that, that's one of the reasons why 1000 widows is so important too is there you know it's a resource to hopefully uh, share um, places that people can gain access, have more uh, people to talk to. Uh, they can tell their story. They, they don't feel alone. Uh, and there's uh, and hopefully there are, is some action items that they can take within their own community, uh, if not on their own, but with uh, the help of the folks at the, uh, at 1000 Widows. So yeah, um, I yeah. encourage everybody to share this and talk about this website because if for anybody that lost anybody over the last three years, because exactly. I think I think that what will happen when you look through this website, you'll realize like, oh my gosh, my loved one went in for X, even if they went in for COVID guys, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if they went in for um, a broken leg or abdominal pain or heart issues. Um, the same things happened once they were labeled positive from these awful PCR tests that never had any, um, you know, uh, the cycle thresholds were all different. Exactly. Like they weren't even mm -hmm. using, you know, a standard. Like I try to tell people with like a pregnancy test, you take a pregnancy test from Walmart, from the dollar store, or from your doctor's office on a stick, that mm -hmm. pregnancy test is all, it's all the same. It's standard. These PCR tests were not. And one of the other big things that I want to touch on very briefly is I worked in the ICU, ER, and hospital supervisor. So I rotated through all those departments. There were like three or four cases that I had when I worked in ICU of patients that were labeled COVID positive, pretty much just shut in a room. And I'm asking the doctor, why do we not have an antibiotic on board? Their, their, their white blood cells are going up. Their um, temperature is going up. Why are we not putting an antibiotic? And they would say, it's COVID, it's COVID. And I'm like, did we lose all sense of, of our protocols and what we would typically do for patients, we would always put an antibiotic on board to prevent secondary infection. And I had several cases documented in my, in my lawsuit of where I went into the room, had a patient spit in a cup, even though the doctor didn't order it. And then I told the doctor, Hey, I got a sputum sample. I'm going to throw in an order for it. Okay. And they were like, uh, and I was okay. like, I got a sputum sample doc. It's green. I'm going to, can I put it in? And they were like, okay, because what are they going to tell me? They, they can't tell a nurse. No. Right. And so, and well, so they, they would come back and they had like two or three different pneumonias that left to, gone untreated for days. I yep. mean, even having the patient lay in the bed you know, produces pneumonia, even if they didn't come in there for that. So these types of things, like, yes, I really want people to understand what well, happened. Lori, you can um, jump in and tell, open with your story and I'll button up with mine and we can have a deeper dive on some of these same consistencies. But that, it's interesting, Jody, because we uh, ran into the exact same thing. My wife didn't test positive for COVID. Um, and uh, but the one way that they got around nurses like you was by hiring contract nurses from outside the state and outside the country, mm -hmm. because those nurses would never ask that question. 
it's the nurses like you that took the oath and actually, you know, believe and do no harm first. And you, you, your patient means everything to you that uh, would have kept millions of people alive by treating them the appropriate way by testing certain things. But like you said, but they didn't do that. They had a protocol uh, uh, set up. And if you didn't agree to it, you could leave, you could be fired. They would call you, you know, unvaxxed. They would label you whatever, just to get you out of the system and then bring in these contract people that had no liability. They could go from one hospital to another. My wife had over 20 different nurses in 15 days in Banner Baywood. That's, That's ridiculous. Horrible. Ridiculous. That's not yes. one person, not one person could give me when I would ask what her condition is and what the next scheduled treatment is. What is she on? I don't know. I just fill orders. That's my job. But that's a whole, that's one of the reasons why we're driving so hard at this at a different level than just repeating the sad, the sad stories. Those are is super important because people have to find somebody like them, right? That has had a similar experience and then go, man, that, that we need, I, that's great. These people are out there doing what I want to, you know, I had no idea. So, but Lori started in this deal with the thousand widows and, and starting to create uh, these, um, these uh, opportunities for people to contact us, work with us, participate with us, learn what they can do in their own communities is going to help uh, drive a lot of the exposure. And hopefully we can raise the level of conversation up to the level, much like you're having with um, your team and uh, exposing these people, but also holding them accountable and ex uh, exposing the the fraud, uh, the you know the misuse, the the choreographed um, structures for protocol and incentives. I mean, it's a really deep, sick, gross conversation when you start thinking about this was all choreographed for however long it was before we all had to get forced to to endure it. But yeah, sorry for that little bit there, rant. Um, but Lori, if you want to tell a little bit like your story of Jody ask, I'll, I'll button mine up and then we can take it a different way. Well, for, first I want to say there are some really good nurses out there and there are some really good doctors out there. We just need to encourage them. And I understand the sacrifice that you have made and the sacrifice that they will make bring, bringing forth the truth. Um, my husband was not tested in the hospital. He was tested nine days prior. He battled all the way through it. Right when he got to the hospital, because his primary care doctor refused to see him because of the fever. When he got to the hospital, they sent him home the first time. Go home, you're better off to fight it at home. When he came back to the hospital a day later, he, we just couldn't keep the fever down in oxygen. We begged for antibiotics. We begged for some treatments that uh, at the time weren't truly censored until right about then they started censoring information. So it wasn't until for 16 days, he did not receive antibiotics. And every day we're like, please, he has pneumonia. You said he has pneumonia. And I kept being told it's not protocol. It's not protocol. Um, they let him get to a point where we had refused from Visivir, um, had to do it kind of in a sneaky way, um, saying, well, they said it wasn't any good um, for if you didn't hit before day six or seven, he's past that. Um, so we were day 16, um, finally given antibiotics and they wanted to do Tashi Limazad as well. Tashi Limazad, I was billed $11,400 for the dose instead of a couple of dollars for some ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and inhaled with that night. The, um, I was able to finally see him 
Um, a few days after that, they allowed me in for 45 minutes. Um, he had had a, a vagal episode. He'd been basically restrained to the bed for so long. He, they were not getting him up. They were not doing, you know, oral care or anything. No, nothing. Um, I was able to see him for 45 minutes. And just while I was there, his oxygen went to 92. And he was just so happy to see me just, just to sit there and hold his hand and, and talk through things. Um, they transferred him to ICU for closer watch. He just needs closer watch. We're, we're worried about what happened last night. All the time they're escalating the oxygen and then they titrate it down at night where he, he would panic. Um, they got him to ICU. The doctor did call me and said that uh, we want your permission to intubate. He's agreeable and he wants you to agree. Um, if we don't do it, he's going into respiratory failure. And I'm like, I want to talk to him. He was just at 92. How can this be? He goes, no, no, no. He's going downhill fast. If we don't do it, he'll die. And I, I'm like, please let me talk to him. And he's like, he doesn't want to talk to you. I'm sorry. After 34 years of marriage and he and I worked together daily, he was my best friend. We told each other everything. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine my husband saying he didn't want to talk to me. Yeah. He was begging them to let me go with them. And they escorted me out. Um, and I said, you do. Finally, I agreed. I said, you do whatever you have to do to save him, but you better save him. And I want, you know, antibiotics. I want nutrition. I was shocked that he had lost over 55 pounds. Um, there were medications. I had one nurse and I, and I would just... I pray every day she becomes a whistleblower. About day two in ICU, he, he started to do really good. They had adjusted the vent and they adjusted the placements of the tube and everything. And she just kept telling me, Lori, ask more questions. We've got to get him off all this. And a couple of days later, um, I'd ask her, you know, what kind of questions should I be asking? She's like, ask about medications, ask about doses. And I was writing it down every day. I have a huge journal of every conversation. Um, like I was never told that he was given large doses of midazolam, which is a yeah. breathing depressant. And, and looking at the records, every time they did that, his oxygen would drop. Well, that kind of makes sense when you're on fentanyl, Presidex, um, <laughs> lace, I mean, all these drugs. And then lorazepam, Ativan, it's like, what are those? I kept asking, what are those drugs doing? And when is he going to get nutrition? And when I really hounded one doctor who was supposed to be a specialist that I later found out in order to conserve PPE did not enter the patient's room. You know, I'm, uh, we're going to pause right there. We, we have to go to a break, but when we come back, I'd love to um, really push on that part of it because that, that was an egregious thing. Many doctors were able to get away with, with not going into the patient's room, but they were charting yep. report received from nurse due to limiting COVID exposure. We'll be right back. It's time in this six Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. 
and today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the OutLoud Network over and over again. Check out CoFixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at CoFixRx.com. was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, guys. Uh, we 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 left off with Lori telling of uh, her experience with her husband Eric in the hospital. And Lori, you were saying that the doctor didn't go in the room. Correct. Mm-hmm. They and I did not know that at the time. He just said, you know, things like his lungs were really cruddy, and and I didn't discover that until I was reading the records, which is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do after experiencing what you have. Um, He was viewing him from outside in order to conserve PPE. I was very concerned about the amount of weight that Eric had lost. In fact, I didn't recognize him when I went in the room, the nurse had to tell me, no, that's him, go back in, when I saw him. Um, The, I hounded him about nutrition and I wanted high dose vitamin C and nutrition. I was just, I was upset that he looked the way he did because I wasn't being told. Um, 
he told me, and I, and I quote, none of that shit's proven. Stop worrying about it. We have bigger battles to fight. And I was, I was really taken back. Um, in fact, when I talked to the nurse next, I'm like, I don't want him anywhere near my husband. And she understood. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I don't, I don't want to cry. We were, um, I couldn't take it. Finally, August 3rd, I had researched and found some alternatives. Um, the RLF 400 guys, uh, I knew I got a hold of the head of the company. He was willing to come out and administer it. They were having great success with late, late stage COVID patients. He was in Florida and he offered to fly it out and treat and the hospital refused to allow it. They let me come in for a couple of hours um, when I saw him because they kept pushing me for a DNR and I kept saying no. Um, and then late that night, about 1130, they called and they said, if you want to say goodbye, he's not going to make it through the night. Um, Eric passed away August 4th at 237 in the morning. We had to give the DNR because there was no way he was coming out of this. There was just no way he was coming out of this. I'm so sorry. Thank you for sharing your story. I know how hard it is. I mean, even if you tell it several times, it just, it really just feels like it's not real. And you, you cannot imagine how all of these things were coordinated and took place. And thank you, Lori. I just want to add one more thing. Um, my husband always entrusted me to fight to the end for whatever was right and stand up. Um, you mentioned the PCR test. The PCR test that he was given June 23rd, um, I called the company and I said, I want a copy of it. And I want a copy of how it was ran, what cycles I want, the, the lot, the number, everything. And I have an email. They absolutely refused to give it to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would go to down to lab um, whenever I was hospital supervisor, which was about 60% of the time for almost a year and a half. And I would get different lab technicians and I would ask them the same question, you know, because this hospital supervisor, they see you walk in and they're like, oh, shoot, why is a hospital supervisor in here? You know, and, and I would just talk with them, frankly, and I'm like, hey, what's the what's the cycle threshold on this? And, and they had no idea. No idea. The one answer I got from one person said, we run these tests for 52 minutes. And I'm like, what? And they, and they would, they were, they didn't even know um, as much as they should have known. And that's and how, how is that possible? This is your job. This is your job. And, and we're, you know, issuing, issuing out these test results and you don't even know how um, it, it's ran it. Ah, uh, man. Curtis, do you want to? Yeah, no, I was sorry. I was going through some notes. Uh, just Lori's story resonates so much. And I, that's the one thing about doing this is uh, the hope is that we just don't continue to tell the story in the same echo chamber that, in fact, it resonates with other folks and they see the value and want to help uh, where they can, too. So, um. My wife um, had been complaining of 
some breathing. Uh, we'd been to a Christmas party, uh, 2021 December, uh, came home, didn't feel well the next day. A couple of days go by. We're not, still not feeling well, but we've been together for 40 years. You know, we've been through bronchitis and we'd had COVID earlier in the year uh, together. So we kind of knew if we, you know, how to get by this and um, felt like we were doing fine. You know, same old stuff we would always do. Uh, she went on about her day a couple of days after that. We went to the Christmas morning uh, with our kids. Uh, the next day we were both kind of down a little bit, but the following day she was up doing the things she loved to do. And I went off and got some new golf clubs and got fitted. And, you know, they seemed like things were going to move right back to normal. A few more days went by and um, um, and she kind of hit a wall. Uh, didn't seem like uh, she was going to get she was getting any better. And I told her that if she didn't improve the next day, we were going to at least go to the urgent care and get some some medication, get her looked at, figure out what was going on, because our feeling was she had some sort of pneumonia. But if she did have um, COVID, I, you know, we just get her started on some monoclonals or something like that, if that's what it was required at the time. You know, that was 2021. Um, December 21, you know, this, that strain that was supposed to run through the winter time was supposed to be, you know, for most folks, a headache and a flu and a little sniffle and you'd be fine. So what we had heard in the media, and this goes back to some of the stuff that Lori touched on too, and you have as well, is was the, um, sort of the, the model for how they were going to um, build the case around supporting their protocol. And one was sort of censoring information and not letting people know that there were early treatment um, options available to keep them from going to the hospital. That was, I think, by design. Um, their best bet was to get you in the hospital for anything, a twisted ankle, a bro you know, sore back, uh, whatever. And then when, then they could test you, run that PCR test a zillion times until they found their COVID positive that they needed uh, and then begin the process of treating you accordingly. So we got there. Um, she was, uh, we went to an urgent care. We didn't have primary care here at the time. We'd only been back uh, for probably 10 months in Phoenix. We'd lived here most of our life, had gone away for a while, came back. So we didn't have primary care to call and say, hey, doc, you know, what do I do? So we went to urgent care. They weren't open. We turned around and went to go get some coffee and we passed by the emergency room because we didn't know the area all that well. She said, hey, are you going to take me to the emergency room? And I said, no, I wasn't thinking about it. And she said, I think that's probably where I should go, which was tough because we had been, you know, helping each other for so long and it just didn't seem like it was an emergency room treatment. But anyway, we went there. Um, they got her on a little bit of oxygen, like three liters or five liters or something like that, just sitting in a chair. And she said she felt, you know, better with a little bit of oxygen. They got us into an emergency room checked us in. Uh, the emergency room nurse was super kind, um, loving, interested in Tammy's care. We talked about a lot of different things. I wish I had probably read into more of her comments, much like Lori said too. Um, I picked up after the fact, replaying all this in my mind a million times a day, every effing day. Um, the, um, you know, she said things like, you know, her mom, she took her mom home and cared for her mom at her home. And if I had been able to pick up see, on that, yeah, I probably yeah. would have recognized that she's telling me I should go, but I didn't, we were focused on our, my wife and we were bantering about a bit The she said, Hey, they got you a room. You have pneumonia. 
But good news is you don't, you know, you're negative COVID, but they've got a room for you for your pneumonia, probably going to get you on antibiotics for a day or two, and then they'll get you out of there. So we went to the, we got in the elevator, she accompanied us, started up the floor, and I had had um, four surgeries, uh, two on my spine, two on my shoulders, I had, and one in my head, I had five surgeries in 30 months. So I'd been in and out of hospitals for quite a bit from an accident. Um, and most of them were trying to conform the, the surgeries around not bumping into COVID so that we could continue the, the structural elements that were required for me to be able to walk. So I'd been in and out of a lot of hospitals and seen how they were operating. And most of them were uh, at the surgery level, looked pretty active and lots of people. And, you know, they were no masks, some masks, all that stuff. When they took us to the floor where they empty opened up the elevator and we were faced with the floor that they were going to put her on for uh, what they labeled uh, pneumonia uh, on the emergency room floor, it looked like a scene from a movie. People were in full gear, uh, like chemical lab gear, helmets, face shields, gloves, everything like that. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is weird. Felt a little uncomfortable. Tammy had her head down, didn't think much of it. But when we got to the room, uh, as they pushed us down the room, it got even more goofy. We got to the room, the big double doors open. It's a massive room. Looks like there's room for three or four people in there, but it's only her. And when they opened the doors, we were greeted with seven peat white coats. And uh, I'm kind of taken back a bit going, that's weird. Um, never, ever been, except for in surgery, have I ever seen that many people uh, at, at, at this level? And they're it got awkward because I looked at the emergency room nurse who was helping us push up and her eyes were the size of quarters. And she looked at the people and she goes, the, they're just here for pneumonia. She's just got pneumonia. Uh, she tested negative. And they said, yeah, 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 we got it. And they, they pushed her out of the, of the room and closed the doors. And immediately I was disturbed. Who are you? What's going on? Um, earlier that year, Jody, I had I spent the last four hours with Tammy's mom in Washington state. I was the one that took her to the hospital for COVID. She was in her eighties. She had some underlying conditions, but it was early on. It was in June of 2019 or 2020. And one of the first ones in Washington, not the, you know, say there was a thousand that had died by that point. She was one of those. And I watched what they did. I spent four hours with her in the hospital room. I kissed her on the, we prayed. We did all the things that normal son-in-law and mother-in-law have been together for 40 years would do. And um, uh, when I got up to go to the restroom, they came back, security locked the door and wouldn't let me in. Um, they, so I had that experience and I knew this felt like that. Yeah. So I immediately pushed back and said, what are we doing here? Who are you? And started getting names of all the people that were there, phlebotomist, uh, a, uh, infectious disease person, a respiratory therapist, a, a technician, an RN, a charge nurse, uh, all these people were all in the room here. And uh, the one guy that I'd never heard the name of before, um, and I referred to him as Satan, uh, was the hospitalist. And this hospitalist person came up to the laptop, uh, started punching on the, the laptop next to Tammy and calling plays. So he immediately started telling everybody what they were going to do. And, and as soon as I pushed back, um, they said, well, what are we going to do? This is COVID. And I said, well, how could it be COVID? She just tested positive or negative four floors down. You guys don't have a COVID diagnosis. He goes, no, but this that's what this is. She's got COVID. Yep. Presumed. Go, 
Presumed. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this. We need to, you know, back off and let's let's get her. Um, I said, you don't have a COVID diagnosis. I we don't think she has COVID. We think she has pneumonia. Your diet, your emergency room person says she has pneumonia. So let's get her treated for pneumonia. Let's do that. Everyone can do that. Um, so they had a choice, Jody, to be able to do what they were to to make a decision on how they were going to treat her. They could treat her for what they believe the possible. Uh, condition was that brought her in pneumonia, or they could treat her for what they wanted to treat her for. You know, let's let's be real. Pneumonia, you're in for a day and a half, four thousand dollar bill. COVID, you're in for as long as you are until you die, hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollar bill. Five hundred thousand for the for the ICU patients that were vented. Yep. Well, we're going to get there. Uh, she was vented twice. Wow. So. Tammy, after they say that that she's COVID, they had their choice. They decided they were going to go COVID. I pushed back. I said, we're not doing anything COVID related at all. She needs an IV. She needs an antibiotic. And we're not doing anything else like that. Uh, and I sat there with her for several hours while they tried to uh, convince her that she needed to do something. She needed remdesivir and this other stuff. Finally, by the time they came, this took two hours, maybe three hours going back and forth with all these people. By the time the last one came in, I said, Let, I'll play your game. Let's say she has COVID. The most common uh, deal that I have found across the, the country, and I'm a smart guy, but I'm certainly not uh, up to speed on what all this stuff was. I had, didn't know anything about a lot of this stuff, but what I had heard was monoclonal antibodies seemed to be a good source for helping them. Let's get her on monoclonals. They said, oh, no, can't do that. She doesn't qualify. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? She doesn't qualify. Well, February 3rd, federal government shut down the monoclonals uh, for distribution across states. So now you had to qualify after February or January 3rd, you had to qualify in order to dispense the monoclonals within the hospital system. So that's what she, that's what she, we were up against. Yeah. My dog is giving me a fit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can tell you, from my experience, like I had my dad, he went into the hospital in the emergency room and he's in Chicago and, and I'm in Arizona and they called me. I called him and talked with him and he's like, yeah, I came in here really bad, um, not feeling very well. You know, he has COPD, um, heart issues. He's been cast several times. Um, diabetes, high blood pressure, all of it. Right. He he's he, across the board. He's got a ton of comorbidities. And when I talked to him after he was in the ER for a couple hours, um, he's like, yeah, they're telling me I have COVID. Well, prior to that, um, for about four days, he was, um, he was taking ivermectin prophylactically. I had talked with him, um, hearing some of his symptoms and, you know, he got the medication, he started taking it. And now four days later, he's in the hospital. And he said, Well, my blood pressure was low. And um, but they gave me a couple bags of fluid, and I'm doing well. And I feel much better. And, um, and then the doctor comes in. And the doctor comes in and he's like, all right, Joe, so you're very, very sick, you're critical, we are going to take you up to ICU. And um, we're going to put um, uh, a central line in your neck and um, put um, 
uh, give you a Foley catheter for you to, to urinate in. Um, and then we're going to give you two units of blood. And I said, excuse me, this is, um, his daughter. I'm on the phone. And, and the doc's like, yeah, your dad's very, very sick. And I let him just keep talking. And I said, well, what's his, um, what's his vital signs? Oh, his, um, oxygen is low. Okay, doc. I'm I'm just asking. So I'm a nurse. Can you tell me as a nurse, what his vital signs are? And he's like, well, his heart rate's 86, his oxygen's 98%, his blood pressure is like 117 over 58. And I'm like, okay, well, well, he came in with a fever. And I said, do you have him started on antibiotics? Yes. And I said, well, how much oxygen is he on? Um, I don't know. And I said, can you look at the wall and tell me how much oxygen he's on? And he said, two liters. And I said, he's on two liters at 98%. Turn it off. Does he even need it? He turned it off and he was like, oh, and I go, so doc, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put him on a telly floor. We are not doing the central line. We are not giving blood. We're not doing that. We're going to find out why he needs blood before we do all of that. And then he was like, Oh, and I said, listen, I understand what protocol is, but I'm at, but also too, we are taught to look at the patient. We need to look at the patient. And so my dad wound up, I mean, it's a story and everything, but you know, that this is the, 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 the mindset of all these providers, it's protocol, protocol, protocol. If they don't follow protocol, then from their boss, they get in trouble. I mean, and it took me having to talk to several different hospitalists and GI docs and the nurses on every single shift to make sure that they weren't giving him remdesivir that, you know, cause I, I was telling them, I'm like, he's not in for COVID. He's not in, he's, he's, his oxygen is low because his hemoglobin is low because he's bleeding from somewhere, you know? So we're going to find out what that is, but this is like the whole mindset of, of physicians and nurses in a lot of times, because, you know, you really have to be able to critically think through all of this. And a lot of them just are not doing it. Um, they're told what to do and to follow these orders. And that's what they do. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're, we faced that right early on. I mean, they had, a, they had a choice and they decided they were going to treat her based on what they wanted to treat her for, based on what was going to be the best for the organization, the hospital. I don't care how you label it. They could have sent her home for mm -hmm. God's sake. She yeah. wasn't on much oxygen when, I mean, it was like three liters and I don't even know, you know, it was insignificant, but uh, the first, so they got her in the room. We agreed, okay, you can give her some antibiotics, whatever. A couple hours had gone by. One of the rookie nurses uh, who was new to the team uh, bumped the oxygen on the wall. It ran up to like seven liters. It was whistling. My wife was like turned off by it. It was scaring her, giving her a little anxiety. She was like, why is that happening? Tried to convince the nurse to turn it back down. She said, I don't, I can't seem to get it. She actually ran it up over 10 wow. uh, trying to get it back. So the, the phlebotomist guy came back in to check on her. He ran it back down to five and said, you'll be fine. We're going to get you out of here. I've seen 4,000 patients. You're, you're going to be fine. We're going to get you out of here. A um, few days. 
the nurse came back in and when she moved, Tammy wanted to be moved so that she had more light in the room towards a window. So she asked them and they moved the bed a little bit. That lady messed up the thing again, went and got a charge nurse to come back in. The charge nurse immediately challenged me. I'd never seen her before. She said, what are you doing here? And I'm like, wow, that's weird. I've been here all day. Um, my wife's sick, so I'm hanging out. Just um, not, you know, she goes, uh, well, you need to leave. I'm like, I'm not leaving. I've been here for six hours. I'm hanging out with my wife. She's not feeling well. We're going to get a result, get this resolved. Nope. It, um, that's our policy. You have to leave. Uh, you're only supposed to be here one hour. And I'm like, what policy is that? Yep. First, yeah. she told me I couldn't get monoclonals because she doesn't qualify. You won't tell me how to, how to qualify. Uh, th- now you're telling me I have to leave because it's your policy. What policy are we talking about? Um, so then I became combative. They, that's what they labeled me. I wasn't you know, trying to fight anybody or do anything like that. But they, were, they made me, labeled me combative and said, uh, got the security people to come into the room. Once the security people realized that I wasn't going to leave, um, they, the cops came. Uh, the cops come, they escort you out of the building and you get trespassed. Uh, so now my own, now the only advocate to help my wife who under the circumstances right now is thankful she's getting an antibiotic and a little bit of oxygen to feel better and trusts the medical system to the point where these people actually care about me, um, is willing to stay for another day or, uh, get some rest and come home. I wrote on the whiteboard. You're familiar with that, Jody. I just put no, no sedation, no high flow, um, and no remdesivir, Curtis Bay, my phone number. I said, babe, are you okay with this? She said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine. Just get some antibiotics. I'll be fine. Day two, they only let me in for an hour. I had to be escorted by uh, security up to the room. Um, I stayed with her for the hour. Um, she said she was feeling better. Um, she was looking forward to getting home. Her oxygen had been ramped up to like 10 in the middle of the night. Didn't Nothing made sense to me at all. I couldn't get anybody to tell me why they did it. The nurse said to me, oh, we're just following the orders. I said, can't you ask some questions for me? I mean, how do I get to talk to the doctor? They're never around. They yeah. only, you guys invite us to come when no one's here by design. And they go, yeah, that's pretty much the way it works. They, uh, they come and do their 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 walkthroughs. They give us orders, and our job is to only fill the orders. I go, can't you push back? Can't you ask questions? Nope, that's not my job. My job is to fulfill the orders. Well, and well, that's not their job. And that was a big problem that I had in the hospital. I'm like, we are here for the as a patient advocate. We are not here for hospital policy. The policy and protocol does not trump the patient. This right. is a, and that's why after my story was released and I received, you know, more than a dozen complaints against my license and I went in front of the Arizona State Board of Nursing and they ordered me to undergo a formal ethics evaluation and I came back, you know, with flying colors that I had no wrongdoing, there was nothing they could do because I was there as a patient advocate, and that was my job. And as a nurse, if I notice any safety issues, I am a mandatory reporter to report. And so I just, I, I, you know, guys, I, when I first blew the whistle, I was told like, write a book, write a book. And I'm like, nah, I don't need to write a book. Like the Lord just led me to do this and record it. I hope that I can just like go by, you know, go back to my normal life. And, and well, that wasn't the case, you know, but then I would meet people so many of them and they're like, you're courageous, you're brave. And I'm like, no, 
no, I'm not. I, I did what I'm supposed to do as a nurse. And so what I quickly realized is that courage is very rare and that I did need to write it down in black and white. And, and it's coming out here soon on the 17th. And what it does is detail my journey through COVID um, and how my faith got me through it all. But it but I list out because what I was doing was posting on social media and from the jump. I mean, I was always posting about science. So I just took what my posts were from my memories. And then I, you know, and I wrote the book in that manner, but I'm hopeful. And what I want to encourage and work with you guys for with is to send that book to the nurses or the station that took care of your loved ones. Right. And then now that book is there and they can read it. And maybe by the grace of God, like hopefully something triggers in them that says, oh, I understand her thought process. I had the same thought process. I could do this, too. I could come out and expose this. Like, that's what my my prayer is for the book is to is to be able to um to just hit the hearts and minds of people and, and get them to wake up out of this slumber, you know, because, you know, we've just done a lot of things that did not make sense. And, and we're realizing that a lot of souls have been lost because of it. And, um, and we need to encourage people and empower them to speak up and use their voice. Um, but you know, guys, I'm, I'm thankful. I am going to have you on again, Um, we are going to elevate this organization and I am committed to every single time I am on my show talking about this topic to say the name and to encourage people to reach out to you because I'm sure you got a lot of people that are reaching out to you from all over, um, the country now, because I believe that this organization needs to go global essentially global. And, um, and, and we can really try to fight this crimes against humanity, but this is nurses out loud. We are six nurses brought together, bound by ethical principles and on our mission to protect the heart, souls, minds, and body of humanity. The last three years have changed us in different ways. We are not afraid to get engage in this battle. We want to empower and encourage others to do the same. We are in a war for truth. We're putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. Join us weekdays with a different nurse host daily. No topic is off limits as we shine our lights and expose the darkness. It's time and this is.